maiņu trams un hoka plēts un kīda lūsu blāk. Tad trams uz kantrēnu un dengam nesenīnu dāk. Ap tev tīja rūpa un tēli un ceks ir aizīm. Pār ap un tēdas nūvinot un savs par gretnā griņa. Ap sīna haiba nēvas ar cauri un tēdu mūn. Ap ben vai krīp un kalendāru un dvim vai bāni dien. An beiden nepti sundi teiden places of Hello and welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, I will begin looking at the second book of the Baroque Cycle by Neil Stevenson, The King of the Vagabonds. Uh, this, uh, The King of the Vagabonds in the title is referring to Jack Shafto, who will be a major character throughout the rest of the Baroque Cycle. It's kind of the second of three major characters we are introduced to in the first volume, um, including Daniel Waterhouse and Eliza. Uh, actually, we meet Eliza in this section of the book, too. Um, this is our chance, I guess, to get a look at the underclass of of eight, late 18th or late 17th century, uh, early 18th century uh, Europe. Um, and I guess the archetypical figure of this underclass is the vagabond, right? Um, and through the vagabond character, we're able to get a look at dissenters like Huguenots. We're going to look at uh, uh, low-level merchants. We get a very different look at street life than we got in the first part of the book. We get, uh, you know, we get to look peasant life. We get to see witches. We get to, uh, we get to see slaves. So we get a much broader view of European society. And I think that's on the surface what the King of the Vagabonds does in addition, in addition to introducing us to Jack and Eliza. Um, but I think this is a bit of a trick. Um, maybe not that hidden of a trick, because if you read it, it's pretty obvious. But by the end of this section, this 300 pages that make up the center part of Quicksilver, the first volume, we are we're started in like literally like the mud below London. That's what he calls it, like really the... The, the sewer, essentially, of London society, that's Shafto. That's where he grew up in. That's his, uh, you know, where he comes from. But by the end, or in the middle, it becomes about commerce, and it becomes about how to make money. And it becomes, and, and we see kind of there's a little bit of openness in in early capitalism for people to, to move their way up. Now, I do think Eliza, I don't want to use the term, that's what we use, like a Mary Sue, because she's not. But it is her rise in many ways is 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 sometimes kind of unbelievable, uh, like just how brilliant she is. Um, but it's kind of explained away that she was cultivated in Constantinople. And she's just uh, incredibly intelligent. But she's able to kind of work her way into Amsterdam business life or by the middle part of the of this uh, book. And then, but at the end, um, we find both Eliza and Jack slaves. And they're slaves largely for politics. So it's, it's a very, I think, well-constructed book where we start really just trying to get a window into the life of the lower class. And we got wonderful stories and adventures. Um, there's some action. Uh, we get to see war from the perspective of, of the lower classes. Um, and we see kind of an Alger story, an Alger myth almost emerging um, where Eliza does become kind of wealthy. Uh, now, Jack is unable to fully make the turn, although he tries. But in the end, they're both essentially slaves. Eliza, a slave to um, political interests in Amsterdam in the context of the War of the League of Augsburg, the war between France and the Dutch and, and the involvement of the English and all that. Uh, there's a lot of complex politics here, and if you need to, re you might need to review your your 18th century European history to follow everything that's going on here. But you kind of have to do that for this whole book. But she wants to see politics as a way of of making money, and she ends up being trapped by that, and she ends up essentially a, a, a slave, um, a, a well compensated and 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 highly public kind of slave. But she's trapped by different forces and that's what dominates the third book of the series um odalisque uh, which is a wonderful name because she starts out eliza starts out as an odalisque right and you think oh now she's getting her independence through book two but in third book 
she's essentially an odalisque again, to uh, the French dip, dip, diplomatic corps, uh, the Duke of Orange, uh, the Duke of Monmouth, William of Orange, right? Sorry. The Duke of Monmouth and other political figures who are using her as, a, as, a, as eyes in the French court. Jack is a much more direct type of slavery in that he, he's literally captured and made a slave. And that also has to do with politics in a way um, involving John Churchill, and um, who would become the Duke of Marlborough, um, and, uh, and uh, this French uh, kind of fleet commander, uh, uh, what's his name? He's got. He's a major character in the book. I got to get his pronunciation right. Uh, Duke Darchon. I guess I'll just say Darchon. Uh, I guess that's right. I'm always stuck with the French. Uh, that may. If you know, I, I struggled through uh, the uh, that history of uh, the French in the New World. Anyways. Um. All right, that's my overall thoughts on the King of the Vagabonds. I'll I'll cover the details of this over the next three episodes, including this one. Um, so the first we were introduced literally, as I said, to the mud below London, 1665. So this is like, a Shafto, Jack Shafto's youth, right? very young, youth, like five, he's like five or so when this starts, his age is kind of always suspect, but we can see he's, he's like 15 years younger than, than like Waterhouse and Leibniz and, and those people. So he's, he's like in his later twenties or so. Um, actually, most of this takes place in this book takes place in 1683 to 1685, which also is like an eight year jump from the ending of Quicksilver. Right now, what happens in those eight years is filled in a little bit, um, you know, with the, the ending of the reign of Charles II in England and what Waterhouse is up to. That all comes sort of it's filled in in the later book. And a little bit in this book, we get a little details of what Leibniz has been up to and things like that. But it's uh, it's just covering these these roughly two years or so um, and about the first part of the book is Jack and Eliza together and then they split up and go their separate ways and we see uh, how both sort of end up uh, well she ends up hating him even though they're they have a romance it's not the most you don't feel the romance I think it, maybe another writer would have done it more but it, it's a it's a very special kind of romance and relationship they have and it does sustain through three books and and you know 30 years later um but but ultimately they end up in a similar place i think that's what i'm trying to say um now the book in, begins with an epigraph from the memoirs of the right villainous john hall which i think is a, a text about a, a vagabond but it, it's about performance quote uh, in art as well as nature must have some extraordinary shape or quality if it is to come into the pitch of the human fancy, especially to please this fickle and uncertain age. Um, yeah, it's, it's talk, oh, it starts out there is doubtless as much skill in portraying a dunghill as in describing the finest palace, end quote. So it's about performance, but it's also about class, right? It's about that we're going to look at the other side of, of European society. Then we go straight to the mud below London, 1665, and we meet Mother Shafto. I don't even think we ever get her first name. And we got the three boys, the oldest Dick, the next Bob, and the youngest Jack. And basically she kicks out all three of them when Dick is too old to count his age on her fingers, which is only like six or seven. So as very young boys, they're sent out to, to make money, basically, in crime. Right. And I think uh, some like homework on this book, if you if you want my recommendation of some homework to do, I think reading the London Hang by Peter Langbaugh would be one recommendation I have, because that's really about capital punishment, which is something that's hanging over Jack Shafto's life for his entire existence, um, but also about capitalism. Right. It's about capitalism, capital punishment and how they interacted and how they served each other in especially the 18th, 17th and 18th century in in London, especially the 19th, 18th century. And in that book, we learn about Jack Shepard, who I think must have influenced Neil Stevenson a little bit. Now, Jack's not quite the same figure. Uh, he, uh, Jack Shepard was someone who, f who got out of Newgate several times. Now, Jack gets out of a lot of pinches, but not really, he doesn't escape Newgate that many times. I think he ends up there, though, in the third book. He ends up in, you know, in the gallows by the end of the book, but We'll deal with that when we get to the end of the story. 
But uh, Jack Shepard became like a local folk hero, right? And that's something that Jack Shafto does in the context of the story. He becomes a folk hero. He becomes famous uh, through his, basically, people writing down his adventures and rumors about his adventures, and they kind of morph together into this King of the Vagabonds. If you read it and you're like, well, Shafto doesn't do that much amazing things, right? But it's not so much about that. It's about the mythology that builds up around this this person who who gives some hope to the lower classes as that they can too can have a life of adventure and wonder and and can do great things, just like the kings. So I think Neil Stevenson's really good to get us to the side of 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 European society. So Basically, what do these boys end up doing? Uh, these Shafto boys, they end up becoming mudlarks, which is basically they hang around the ports and they steal from boats. And usually stealing from boats involves going on the boat, withdrawing some stuff from the cargo, and then bribing the guards, right? Because they are basically in on it. And so kind of everyone's in on this, this, fil- uh, this pilfering that's taking place. Um, but that's true across society, right? Everyone's getting their peace. And that's something that Eliza seems to understand that Jack maybe doesn't quite fully understand is that it's all kind of a game, right? And it's all about who you know and who you bribe and, and, you know. And then some people always get blamed. Some people will get hung for it, right? But the same thing in, t- high, in top society, right? Someone's going to take the fall for whatever happens, whatever goes wrong, right? Maybe not the king, but the shit will always roll down the hill. Um, but everyone's kind of playing a game. It's, it's kind of like, it reminds you of The Wire, actually, um, in how you have a very, you know, how D- David Simon and The Wire is able to look at different layers of society and show how it's kind of the same rules are applying uh, to those various societies. Anyways, the boys, I keep getting off tangent here. This, this is such good stuff, but um, the boys end up working for this, like, this boss, John Cole, who's like the head mudlark, and he sends the young young ones out to to steal stuff from the boats and during one of their efforts to steal anchors they start to say well let's just steal the anchors that's a little easier we don't have to get on the boat we can steal the anchor and then sell it back to those captains right just like someone stealing uh, the copper piping from the from the housing developments in the wire and then selling them back to the builders and, and you know everyone gets paid in the end right the contractors charge more because they know it's going to be pilfered and they just and this is how the Drug users can get their their high. It's 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 uh, it's just how capitalism works at different levels. Anyways, during one of these, Dick Shafto dies in the first few pages. Dick Dick dies, the older brother, and and uh, eventually John Cole is arrested. Now the boys they they get away, but John Cole's arrested, and we got a nice little thing about how. You know, the different tricks that prisoners use to avoid the gallows. One is they would memorize like a part of the Bible. That would be they'd be asked to read. And then if they read it, of course, they just memorize that section of the Bible, but they read it. And this proves they're literate. So then they won't be executed or something. Uh, the other that I know is, of course, pleading the belly where a woman in Newgate, probably going to eventually open the condemned hole for some crime, gets pregnant. Right. And not that hard to get pregnant at Newgate. There's guards, there's other prisoners. <clears throat> and then when the time comes for execution, you can plead the belly and then be deported to, to America. Um, but anyways, John Cole doesn't get away from it and he's going to be executed. So he's a, we're also introduced here to Jack Ketch, who's like the head gallows guy at, uh, at uh, Tyburn. And he's the person you're supposed to bribe. So again, bribing the right people comes into, you know, it's part of survival for these lower classes. You got to bribe the right people. You got to know who to slip money to. And Jack Ketch, if you slip money to, in this case, it's not about survival, but it's about a fast execution, right? He, he tightens the rope so your neck breaks rather than you just hang there and suffocate. Now, John Cole doesn't have money. So he asks the Shafto boys to hang on his legs, tells them, well, I have some treasure hidden away and you can have that when I die. I'll tell you where it is. Um... And they eventually figure out that he's lying because he has no money. Um, but they do it anyways. Um, and they speed along uh, his, his death uh, on, the, on the gallows. And then they figure this is a business opportunity. So these young boys, and again, they're like five, six, seven. Their, their ages are not quite clear, but really, really young. They start going into Newgate, into the condemned hole at the time of year execution season. 
and put on a performance and they basically take contracts to do the same service for other people where they'll hang on the legs and they even do a little play um, where uh, Jack's the criminal and he's being hung and he goes on this long soliloquy about how he's going to be right with God but while he's trying while he's being hung and in pain he takes the God's name in vain and therefore goes to hell and he says oh if only I had hired the Shafto boys to to speed me along my death this wouldn't have you know I would be going up to heaven instead um, but this is how they make money for a while anyways that's just a little that's just an introduction to where we're at with these characters and who these people sort of are um, but the two Shafto boys to know obviously Jack but Bob becomes a major character too um, he becomes a soldier working for the Duke of Marlborough uh, John Churchill and he will be interacting with Eliza in in many ways intimate ways even she becomes a placeholder for for love for Jack in a way um, and he's also into politics and stuff like that but he's he becomes a career soldier not Jack Shafto so the next chapter is set in 1683 it's set in the continent where Jack spent months of his life um, and it's about him going to fight the Turks so we get a long section it's about 25 pages or so big section of this book actually dealing just with this campaign to the relief of Austria in 1683 during that war right the, the last epic siege of Vienna right if you've if you know this the band Sabaton their famous famous song the winged Tazars that's referring to this the siege this campaign but before we get into this we actually find some of what Jack's doing a lot of what Jack was up to working with like John Churchill uh, in the kind of as a military uh, you know ball boy or something uh, courier and doing various odd jobs for the military the English military he was he eventually went off on his own right uh, after being a, a, a fake soldier in France and that's the thing that's a running theme here is that these types of vagabonds they take these military jobs these merc jobs not because they actually want to fight or they're loyal to anyone because they want to get paid and or survive to the next season it's not because they're gonna fight right so these armies are pretty shabby made up of all these these basically cons conscripts who have no loyalty um, they're eventually fake soldiers right uh, they're just at best they're they're there to take a few bullets to put on the show right it's, it's the way warfare's fought in these days and we're gonna learn a lot more about w warfare from our perspectives of Jack and Bob Bob being a very different type of soldier someone who does have a bit of loyalty and commitment to his uh, to his employer if you will Jack's the other kind he's just doing it for for pay but he's we our first real great story of, of Jack Shafto besides the hanging on condemned people's legs is his uh, this the plague house thing where he basically is hired by a man to go to a during a plague in the Palatinate a rich man says I'm hiring you to go to my house live there make sure I don't die you don't die and if you know the I and clean out any like vagabonds who are living there um, and Jack goes there and he finds another vagabond living there but he ends up just like just chilling together um, and then eventually this rich man sends another person presumably to clean out the two bodies and also live there basically the the, the, the man is trying to figure out when is it safe to return to his home when these vagabonds stop dying but each guy who comes ends up like just living out and hanging out with Jack Shafto and the others, presumably not very much affected by the plague. And they drink all the wine and they stay there and party and live their life. You know, they basically squat there until they run out of wine and move on. And this this becomes a story. This becomes well known across Europe as the story of the King of the Vagabonds. But for Jack, it was just Jack doing what Jack does, right? Just living his life um, anything else here uh, no basically yeah he sees that the barley harvest is gonna go is going east for the campaign so he's like oh there's a war so he's gonna go there so he joins up eventually with the Austrian army to go fight in the relief of of, of Vienna um, and so a lot of details here I'm not gonna go into all of it but he becomes a musketeer and a lot of it, there's a lot of marching and looking at the person in front of you. There's all there's bits here about how they make money through this. Like they get 
uh, rum rations, which they gamble with, or some kind of liquor, brandy, I guess it was, brandy rations that they gamble with. They get, uh, you know, certain kind of advanced pay that Jack would, you know, some kind of pay in kind that Jack would sell for money. He's, remember, he's trying to survive, but, you know, he's, he's not the smartest. He doesn't think long term about things, even though he has a couple of kids that he does worry about and he wants to see, get, get some kind of legacy, he realizes he's not likely going to provide it for them. So it's all more about survival day to day. Um, and we learned that, like, ultimately what he's here for is, is, uh, is, is the stealing, he, like, to, to loot. That's really where the money's made in these wars for the soldiers, is in the looting. And that seems to be the case of not just a lot of the common foot soldiers, but a lot of the nobility there, too. There's one point where it's like a Polish officer asks him to hold his horse this is the origin of jack's horse by the way uh he says hold on to this horse while i you know basically loot and you stay here until i'm done looting uh and i'll be back with all my good stuff but jack has the same idea right he's also there to loot and by the way we have wonderful descriptions of the siege of vienna how it was done how like the turks would dig a trench and then sappers would come in and dig another trench beyond it moving closer and closer to Vienna and the same time the Austrians were trying to counteract that. Not really any pitched battles, just a long, grueling fight of trench versus trench upon trench, fortification on fortification. All right. Anyways, after the, the relief of Vienna, the looting begins, right? And Jack enters in on it. And he can't, he doesn't find anything right away, but he does eventually see this ostrich fleeing. This is like a a bunch of animals that the Turks had brought up with them, all these exotic animals, one of which is an ostrich. And he sees it, and people are running after it. So Jack, on this horse, he commandeered from the from this Polish knight, chases after the ostrich, and eventually catch it, captures it. He doesn't quite know its value right away, but he knows it is valuable. So he, he takes it. Later, he comes across a tent where he sees people being executed by the Turks. And... Um, he, he sneaks, he goes, looks in, and it's women being executed. What these are are the, basically these virgins were brought up, these harem kind of women, these slaves uh, from all over Europe and other places to be like virgins that would be like divvied out, I guess, in celebration of the victory over Vienna. But with the feet coming, they're just being executed. Um, and Jack comes in and he basically kills one of the Janissaries. That's doing it and liberates uh, just just one woman, I guess. The rest were all killed, and that's Eliza, right? And she introduces herself right away as a as a fairly educated person, saying, "I know none of the tongues of Christendom save French, English, Tagumian, and a dash of Hungarian." Now, Tagumian, of course, is a made up language. Tagum is a country, made up country that's basically some Scottish islands, but it's a separate kind of kingdom in the Middle Ages that became part of the the English crown, maybe it was originally part of the Scottish crown or something, but it's got its own language, right? And this is what Neil Stevenson uses in Cryptonomicon to be like essentially the Navajo um, code, you know, code talkers. They're, they're kind of his version of them. So anyways, uh, that's our introduction to Eliza, who was a slave. And then um, we start to get stories about these. I don't know the order. I don't remember the exact order they're in. They do flirt a lot because Jack's kind of strapping. He's got a disability, as we'll see, but um, a couple. But Eliza's constantly flirting with him. And she's got like this veil on and she only says these blue eyes. She's Tagumian. She's super hot, right? Super hot and smart. So I guess that's like, I think Neil Stevenson's ideal, ideal lady, I reckon. Uh, I don't remember if there's a character like that in Cryptonomicon. You sort of have that in, uh, in Snow Crash. I remember. Anyways, uh, we start to get various stories. So a lot of the early part of the King of the Vagabonds involves stories of Jack's background or Liza's background. Um, now, now Jack's kind of disabilities and the stories he tell um, about it is he's one. He's got syphilis, the French pox, right? And Stevenson is very careful about this when he's in France. They call it the English pox. Which, of course, uh, is hilarious, but drawn from reality. Um, but he's got syphilis, he's got the French pox, and he knows he's going to go mad soon. So he does, there's this like timer in his life. Stevenson's very 
brilliantly resets it uh, in the second volume of this book and maybe of dubious believability, but it's okay. Um, but he knows he's going mad and he's going to die. And during one treatment effort to be treated for the French pox, which involved really kind of nasty things of like burning off sores with a hot piece of iron or something. Um, nasty. But during that, there's an accident and he gets half his penis chopped off. So that's where his name becomes half cock jack. That becomes how he can identify himself when he needs to. Um, it's, it's also, it's like a distinguishing characteristic, right? So he's not going to be, he's kind of doesn't, it's not that he doesn't have interest in, in girls, right? He's just not able to perform sexually. Um, so that's, it's part of his character and it's part of their relationship. Because Eliza, when she finally does get laid, it's going to be with like rich fuckers, not, not poor Jack. Um, anyways, we get that story. Um, she tells also her story eventually of how she was enslaved as a young girl. So around the time that Jack was, you know, stole Mudlark, Eliza was captured from Tagum with her mother, right? And they basically got it hooked up with the Barbary Corsairs and eventually found her way to Constantinople where she was raised as a, as an Odalisque to become a, you know, a, you know, eventually to be this virgin that'd be given off to some great bazaar for celebrating or some generals to celebrate the siege capture of Vienna. But through this, she completely very cultivated and educated. Um, now, there's some details here, which on their first read you might miss, but definitely they turn out to be very important. About she knows some details about who captured her, right? She knows like their their flags, the, the flag of the family. Um, she knows they're European, um, and she knows the guy because they were on the boat with this guy for a while. He know that he only wants to eat like this rotten fish. It's a kind of a weird, disgusting thing, um, but. It, that's what she sort of knows about them. And by the end of the King of the Vagabonds, Jack is going to know who exactly this is, uh, who sold uh, Eliza into slavery. But he falls in love with Eliza, of course, and so he makes it his mission to get his revenge upon this, this man. And I'll just tell you, spoiler alert, it's, it's uh, Etienne uh, Darchon's father. Uh, let me look it up here. Duc d'Archon, uh, Louis-Francois de Laverdac, cousin to Louis XIV, uh, Admiral of the French Navy. But when he was younger, he was involved in the slave trade and connected with the Barbary Corsairs. All right. So that's, uh, that's her background. And I'm not, I don't remember exactly where you get it, but it, it's, it's early on here in their, in their introduction. Um, so they kind of work out what they're going to do. They basically decide to become partners. Uh, first, they have to escape this battlefield, um, this camp of the Grand Vizar Khan Mustafa, where she was enslaved. They have to escape, and they Jack kills the ostrich and plucks out the plumes, because these are going to be taking a lot of money in places like Paris or Amsterdam, where there's a you know a market for consumer goods. Maybe not Amsterdam. Amsterdam was like a wholesale place. We're told later on, uh, retail would be like France. But that's a lot of money. It's I don't know quite how much in how it would be compared to U.S. dollars now, but it's suggested it's it's a whole lot of money, you know, like maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars or something. In that, we also have his his horse Turk, who's a really good like Eastern European steed, uh, which would bring in a lot of money. And we have a a sword made of Damascus steel, which he steals from a janissary. So they have some value, right? And basically, Eliza suggests they work together and escape and eventually sell the stuff and go 50-50 in together. And, and Jack's, uh, you know, she's super hot, so Jack doesn't say no. Even though thinking long-term is not Jack's, uh, not, not Jack's ability, not his best ability. So they go off. I think Jack at one point has a plan to, like, you know, escape through some tunnels and in the process destroying like the court of the Holy Roman Emperor or something. Liza talks them out of it. They just sneak out through the lines into the wilderness through Austria and, and eventually north to, to Bohemia. While, while they're on their, on their way into Germany or into Bohemia, 
Jack explains that he's what are called in Europe the devil's poor. So this is something, if you read anything about like early modern European charity, poor laws, there's essentially the deserving and the undeserving poor. The deserving poor, I think an orphan, uh, a widow, you know, someone like someone who's sick or crippled. You know, a good Christian who just fall on bad luck. They're worthy of charity and state support. And then you have the devil's poor, people who could work and labor, but choose not to and choose again to be vagabonds. Jack's the devil's poor. And we also learn he's got the V um, tattooed onto his hand, um, proving him a, or branded, right? Not even, I guess a tattoo you could kind of maybe rip off, but, you know, it's branded. So he's stuck with his V. Uh, on his that says vagabond right so if he goes into certain jurisdictions in europe he'll be immediately executed as a vagabond um, but this doesn't deter them jack's been wandering around europe for a long time anyways so they decide to go north into bohemia eventually they want to go to leipzig to the fairs which would begin the next spring so this is already late summer and they want to go the next spring to the fairs in leipzig which is a really great window into like the early modern kind of continental commercial culture. We got a bit of it in the first volume with England. Uh, and this book would be much more about commerce, but you know, some of it are these fairs, right? Where, you know, every couple, couple times a year in a certain location there, the merchants would come and, and they would trade their goods. And one of these is in Leipzig. You probably heard of the champagne fairs in France in the late middle ages. It's that kind of thing. Um, and they go in. Now, Jack makes a comment like, when we go into Germany, when we go into Bohemia first and to Germany, you're not going to meet anyone older than 50. Right? And this is a shout out to the 30 years war, which Europe is still recovering from. And Neil Stevenson does a great job, I think, summarizing just the trauma of the 30 years war on German society. You, you see the consequences of it, especially in this part of the book. Um, you see much more later on the political consequences of it with the Winter Queen and the Hanoverian secession. That's all tied to the 30 years war too, in various ways. But, just the brutal cost of it all. Um, you know, it's 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 not forgotten by our author. So then they go into into Bohemia in uh, the autumn of 1683, and and we got more about the Thirty Years' War. We got we see like these wheat fields that are abandoned and gone wild. They're able to like get some food from this, but you know that's what they see. Those they see. Uh, just empty land, devastated land, burnt buildings, fortresses with cannon ball holes in them and all these kinds of things. Just all the remnants of the Thirty Years' War, which had ended 40 years earlier by this point. But the scars are still there, alive and well in the land. Um, so Bohemia, uh, they, they talk a little bit about the Winter Queen, right, of course, who was like, Connected to Mary, Queen of Scots. She was like the daughter of James I of England, but was married off to the continent and was called the Winter Queen, but she was like the queen of like the Palatinate or someplace for one um, one year, one, one season before kicked out. But she ended up with a lot of kids that all have different like weird claims to different thrones in Europe. So she's uh, an important figure in the story because she's going to tie to... Sophia and Charlotta and Hanoverian stuff that's going on later on in the book. We'll get into that a little bit as we as it becomes important. Uh, we get uh, a few more Jack stories, like his time in Jamaica. His one time outside of Europe was a trip to Jamaica. Um, and the line between... Th this is a great moment for him to reflect on the line between criminality and vagabondry and just commerce. Um, quote, Very near last, all the world's silver comes from Peru and Mexico. I know. We use pieces of eight in Constantinople. And all of it must pass by Jamaica in order to reach Spain. The oldest port royal pirates siphoned off a goodly portion of it. I reached in the place in 66. Only a few years since Captain Morgan had personally sacked Portobello in Panama and brought all the proceeds back to Port Loyal. It was a rich place. I am pleased that you wanted to be a buccaneer. I was afraid you had ambitions of being a sugar planter. Then last, you are the only person in the world who esteems pirates above planters. I know that in the Cape Verde Islands in Madeira, all sugar is cultivated by slaves. Is this the same as true in Jamaica? So, 
we have currency here tied to piracy and how pirates help distribute the currency, um, but also the criminality of the planter class, right? Something that's always on Eliza's mind, who was a slave and her mom was enslaved, died a slave, and and she hates slavery. That's a, that's a clear character point for uh, Eliza. She's interested in other stuff, but she hates slavery. And she becomes like an early abolitionist later in the story. So uh, now... Jack tells other stories during this time. I mean, Eliza just loves the stories. So you can tell a lot of their flirting is kind of, she wants him to be Scheherazade, always telling stories. And when he doesn't tell stories, she gets a little annoyed and upset with him because they can't fuck, right? That's something. And she's a virgin anyway. She's kind of preserving that. But he doesn't, he has half a dick anyways. So their relationship becomes much more about storytelling and it's, it's a much more of an intellectual um, relationship, even though, and they're not from different classes. I don't want to say that they're from the same class, but she's got that cultivation that she learned in Constantinople. And he's still just a, a vagabond who doesn't really want to mature about that. Um, now, Jack says we're kind of trouble here because we're not going to have enough fuel for a winter in, in Bohemia. We need to find this hot springs I heard of. And to find out, he has to talk to Vagabond. So he takes some gunpowder that they, I guess they seize from the Turks, throws it, lights it and throws it into the water, killing, you know, hundreds of fish. And he has like a huge fish feast for all the local Vagabonds. And why does he do this? Well, he does it so he can get information from them. And he talks to them and he finds out where the hot spring is. So then eventually um, Jack and Eliza hide out. So this is now the winter of, of 1683 and 1684 they're hiding out in this hot spring in bohemia you know some connection to the local community but basically hiding out in these hot springs and telling stories and one story jack tells is the siege of maastricht which we talked about in uh the second or third episode of maybe the third episode of the series which from the perspective of london from when we got the duke of Monmouth coming back and being celebrated as a as a victor jack was there too right as a soldier with his brother not really a soldier he was more of like a runner and a because he was still a kid um but for john churchill and so this is our introduction to john churchill who will you know obviously be uh, become the duke of marlborough and if you don't know him you should the duke of marlborough was the great english commander during the war of the spanish secession um his father uh, Winston Churchill was a royalist, right? We met him also in the first volume. So a lot of good family connections here that you have to keep track of. Now, one thing Jack talks about doing here is he's trying to loot the body of D'Artagnan. You know, of course, D'Artagnan is that musketeer who becomes heroic and becomes, ends, up, ends up into fiction, right? The Three Musketeers. But he was more of a folk hero at the time, a, you know, a great warrior respected by all sides and he found him dead. He really did die at this battle. Um, and Jack tries to like pull rings off his fat fingers and can't, can't do it. He's even thinking about cutting off his fingers, not able to really do it, but that's part of his story up there. And after telling this story, this really turns on Eliza enough that she decides to, to uh, have some kind of sex with him. Some technique she learned from like the Orient involves chakras really it's just his anal g-spot that she's able to uh stimulate and so jack you know finally gets something um and presumably they keep doing it for a while that's the only time it's really described but it's hinted at that they're they're they still have this sexual relationship throughout much of the novel all right it's good stuff though it's, it's a romance. It's a romance. It's based on stories, chakras, and and a 50-50 business partnership that's never fully, that part of it's never fully consummated. But, you know, you get what you can, you, you get what you can take. All right. Um, our next chapter is in Leipzig, April 1684. So they finished off the winter together, presumably learning a lot about chakras. Um, and the, our introduction here is about Leibniz. You're thinking, why is Leibniz in the story now? And of course, everything's connected. You know, Neil Stevens is going to connect all this together. So 
we do meet Leibniz in this section. He's um, here's this is actually from a letter from Lizoletta uh, to Sophie. These are, of course, the lectures of, of Hanover who hired Leibniz, right? He's like their librarian. From all I hear of Leibniz, he must be very intelligent and pleasant company in consequence. It's rare to find learned men who are clean, do not stink, and have a sense of humor. This is uh, in 1705. So we know a little bit more about Leibniz's character. He, does, he, he cleans up nice, I guess. So anyways, they're on their way to this Leipzig fair and all kinds of... Now we, we're fully in a book about commerce. Uh, the vagabond stuff takes is still there. It's still under the surface. Um and Jax can't quite leave that part of his life, but we're, you know, we're like I said, we're there's a bit of a trick here in that this King of the Vagabonds becomes a book really about commerce and war and things like that, and politics, the politics of mercantilist commerce in the 18th century. Um, but this is just uh, the Leipzig fair that they're entering, and first the conversation is like they got to exchange money to these tallers which Jack very humorously mispronounces as, as dollars. Of course, that is the origin of the term dollar. It's from the German, the German right? Um, but they have to do their currency exchange for the local money, and they got, you know, they're trying to sell the plumes. They're trying to... Oh, the other thing I forgot to mention, Eliza had stolen all the silk, and she put it under her clothes. So during the winter, she had to like make that into clothing. So she took that silk and made it into clothing, which they also want to sell. So they have Turk, they have the plumes, they have the silk clothing, and they have um, the Damascus steel sword uh, as their assets. Now, what Eliza learns pretty quickly here, maybe she already knew it, but she figures it out through talking to Leibniz and others, that you don't need money to make money, all right? What you need are connections. You need people to trust you. You need people to believe in you uh, to be able to lend you money. There's a great line, not in this part of the book, but a later part, where Jack's like, how do we have money to buy this? And like, I think she says something like, we're going to buy Quicksilver because Quicksilver is needed to make silver and it's more profitable than just invest in silver mines. And Jack's like, well, how are we going to get the money to buy the Quicksilver? And she says, we'll use someone else's money. Right? And of course, that is a big trick in capitalism, right? You know, a lot of the super rich people have a lot of debts, right? They're bar constantly borrowing money. And they can do that because they have the connections and they they have the right degree. Um, and bankers trust to loan them that money. Right? And if they don't pay off their loans, no one cares. Not like us, not like us common folk who have to pay back our debts. The rich don't have to, obviously, right? It's a, it's a house of cards that they can always keep... Uh, adding to right there's a great metaphor later on in this book king of the vagabonds about this uh, merchant in amsterdam who has to prop up his house because he's having this big party he has to actually prop up the floor of the house and stevenson suggests through eliza's mind that this is basically how the whole economy works or right? so people propping it up with debt and relationships and connections and once in a while it does collapse but it collapses on one person right but it doesn't collapse on the system the system is is sustainable and can be bounced around the pain can be spread right? Someone short sells, someone's going to be screwed, but other people are going to make a lot of money, right? So it's, but there was nothing real there, right? There's nothing real. And, and so Jack's obsessed with like selling the plumes and getting like gold that he can give to his kids. And Eliza figures out it's not about that. It's all about, again, who you know and who has confidence in you. And she understands money isn't real, right? And one of our first lessons of this, and when she when she hears rumors from, like the people making money, in in Germany in Leipzig, you know, making money for the you know stamping it or whatever, producing the silver, they produce the silver and make money for the state, right? That's their their contract, and there's no money in making money, right? They pay, they spend more money than they get from the state for making the currency, right? So actually, real currency doesn't isn't what matters. I think it's, you know, there's so much in this book about how our modern economy really works and how it's been set up in these years, in these early years of capitalism. So anyways, we get a lot here that we meet this guy here, Geidel, who teaches them a lot about the silver mines of Leipzig. Um, they pay their way in 
And she eventually asks around, like, Jack's like, where do we sell the plumes? And Liza's like, no, no, let's shop around. Let's talk to people. Let's get to know what's going on here. And she eventually is introduced to the doctor. And, and why? Well, because the doctor is selling Cookson, which are basically shares in silver mines. And he's selling it. It has something to do with Princess or Sophia and, and those people, the Hanoverians. But he's investing in silver mines for them. And he's been actually developing them. So unlike the other silver miners who can't make money making money, Leibniz is trying to like mechanize things and use machines and technologies to raise the efficiency of mines. So he's trying to sell like mines that have a slightly higher rate of profit. So maybe you can make a little bit of money making money. Not a lot. There's a why this is eventually too complicated. And Eliza figures out, screw this. We'll just get the quicksilver, which all silver miners need. So if you just invest in the simpler thing, right? And again, everything's kind of chained together, right? Right, the money is all chained together. The flows of currency. Same thing with gunpowder. Like, is there a war going to come? Well, then we're going to need saltpeter, right? We're at peace. The price of lead goes down because no one needs lead bolts. But if there's a war, there's rumors of war. Price of lead's going to go up, right? Which will also increase the, the price of saltpeter. So where you invest is all about information. It's all insider trading, right? And anyways, that's where the real money is. But they're still trying to figure out here what to do to make money and eliza cuts to the idea let's buy this kookson in silver mines that's her first idea um and so she goes to meet the the doctor but it's all all this is all getting into the like the liquefaction of money the liquidity of it um jack says first tell me what a kookson is she says shares the mine is divided in half each half into quarters each quarter into eighths and so on until the number of shares is something like 64 or 128 that number of shares is then sold each share is called a kooks and by share i suppose you mean what same as when thieves dig up their swag i was going to liken it to how sailors partake in a voyage proceeds but you stoop lower faster that man nearly shot beer from his nostrils when i said i wish to invest in a silver mine eliza said proudly always a positive omen he said only one man is even trying to sell them at this fair, the doctor. We need to talk to the doctor. That's Leibniz. Um, oh, yeah. Later on, she says, Jack, it's all the same. If we want Cookson, why pass through the intermediate step of exchanging silk or ostrich plumes for coin and then coin for Cookson? We can simply exchange silk or plumes for Cookson. What she learns later on is why do that at all? Why do the silver mines? But she also learns just... The promise of paying back on the profits of your investment is probably even better than the, the ostrich plumes. Right? Some really, uh, some really fun stuff. What I find unbelievable here is that she's able, just through her wit and brilliance, to work her way in to get that confidence. Right now, I think to Stevenson's credit, he shows the limits of it. Eventually, she does just become a slave of political forces much more powerful than her. So anyways, we meet Leibniz. Leibniz shows up. So is Leibniz the only character who's in every book of this in some way? I mean, he's certainly talked about in every book. Anyways, they meet him. And what is he doing? He's debating with a Chinese person about the I Ching. And this is a connection to the Cryptonomicon. Wilkins uses the I Ching for decoding in the cryptonomicon so the idea is if you have like a, a system where, where one equals a two equals b three equals c and you just write numbers you can code a message pretty easily right you'll learn this in first grade um but of course that's can be read pretty easily it's not a very good uh, cryptography well what if you change it to binary and eventually Leibniz teaches Eliza how to switch it to binary. Well, that's still not good enough because you need to shift everything with a secret number, right? You need to have a secret code. And that is drawing from the I Ching, right? So the method that Leibniz and Eliza will use for coding involves starting with the first, the first line of the letter references a passage in the I Ching associated with a certain hexagram, which is via, it's, a, it's eight binary digits, if you know the I Ching, each one is eight binary digits. It's a line or a broken line. 
and there's eight of them and that leads to a, whatever it is 164 hexagrams i think right or is it 60 some sorry i had to look this up i'm, I'm not a math guy i'm not a my computer guy so any computer guys listening are obviously pulling their hair out at my ignorance 64 hexagrams in the eching um all together but so this is the method they eventually and this is really getting ahead of myself in the book but what they do is they'll have a passage which will associate with a certain hexagram of the I Ching, and this will be then what they use to transfer the numbers and so you'll know that when you go back to letters but and then you do it all in binary too which of course makes sense if you're using the I Ching. so they're talking uh, anyways they meet Leibniz talking with this Chinese person about the I Ching and debating it um, and he thinks there's a deeper utility to the I Ching than just like mystical superstition and fortune telling and things like that um, I mean of course he's interested in the binary aspect of it too anyways Eliza comes in they say we want to buy Cookson they immediately Leibniz knows Eliza's super brilliant and, and hot so he becomes enamored with her and starts talking to her and this is the beginning of, of Jack solely being kind of sidelined by Eliza's more profitable connection she can make and I guess I'll leave it at that I guess that gets us to through the first hundred pages or so of the king of the vagabonds so in the next um, episode we'll cover the next hundred pages of the baroque cycle which will get us uh, basically into Amsterdam we'll see the breakup of Eliza and Jack um, into where they go their different ways um, and we'll get to meet, see Paris and Amsterdam in the next episode. And we start to see Eliza slowly getting sucked in by the politics of this epoch. So that's it. Um, a lot of fun stuff to talk about in this um, part of the book. Um, I think it's, it's for many people a favorite. Um, but I love how it becomes about commerce. Much more so than the first part, which is all about... Uh, commerce is there and it's talked about, but... It's always framed in terms of natural philosophy and science, and we get a much more grounded look at, at, at commerce from the perspective of Jack and Eliza, who, although they don't agree about it, both understand kind of the rules of, of the road, so to speak. So anyways, uh, next, next time we'll cover the next, uh, the middle third or so of the King of the Vagabonds. Uh, anyways, thanks for listening. Uh, we a bag of blob on my back, my face is brains and toes. Well, I'm so kicking that is gone.